Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and today I have James Hoffman back on the show. It's been quite a long time since, uh, well, James and I have even spoken, but even a long time since you've been on the show, James, and I know a lot has happened on your end. You're now in a, a different location and kind of you've moved around a lot. Uh, but first of all, if people aren't aware of James, just in case they're new to the show, uh, he has a PhD in sports physiology. He's a coach for Renaissance Periodization, works close with Mike Isratel, who's obviously on the show all the time. Um, and he's involved and headed up many of their ebooks, like Recovering from Training, which is a fantastic read. And James is my go-to resource for all things recovery. Uh, I have to badger him now and then when I see something that I'm interested in and I, I want some evidence-based information from someone who knows their stuff. So... James, how, how's it going for you? How are things on your side of the world? I'm doing good. And thanks again for having me on the show. I know it's been a while and I'm, I'm really glad to be back. Um, things are going good. I went through a lot of crazy stuff. So my wife, I, so I got married. Uh, my, we, we moved to the middle of nowhere in Montana. We got some dogs. I've had no internet for a while. It's just been a shit show. Been a crazy shit show, but I'm finally stable. Everything's good. I can continue my role as I like to say of the uh, Alfred to Mike's Batman. So I'm I'm kind of the the less the guy behind the scenes at RP, helping keeping keeping things together while Mike's out there punching criminals and <laughs> taking good morning selfies where we see the the depths of his butt. Um, you know. I remember Mike saying something along the lines of if James wanted to be like a huge, like not social media star as such, but if you wanted to have a bigger social media profile, you could, but you chose to be behind the scenes, which I think is respectable. And also there's pros and cons with every decision, right? So sure. I can imagine there's quite a few pros to actually being behind and not having pressure and stuff sometimes. Yeah, you know, and like I think some people just respond to it better than others. And one thing, so like I have kind of gone back and forth on social media, for example, where I, sometimes I like to have a presence and a lot of times I don't. And mm. I found that like when I would do actual work stuff, let's say on Instagram or Facebook or whatever, I'd make a post, I would just find myself frustrated at the thought of having to answer questions or engage with people. And that's just me being me. Like I, it's not that they, they're in it's not wrong for someone to say, Hey, what do you, you know, can we talk more about this? Like you put it out there, they're responding. And then I realized like the whole point of using social media is to get them to engage with you. So you can't be indignant <laughs> about them engaging with you when they do. And that's the problem that I have where just, um, Mike has a, an abundance of patience for people to ask all sorts of questions. But if I get like two bad questions, it like ruins my day. And that's just my personality. I can't help it. And it's, uh, it's, it's just better that I just kind of stay in the background. Not that I'm like hate, speeching yeah. or raging on anybody it just looked like it just affects me in a way that i think is negative so i tend to just kind of hang back and every now and again i'll chime in like but like man i had a couple really bad ones where i didn't it wasn't even like a sports science thing i was just like hey here's a book that i read and people were like you fucking nazi fascist all this stuff. i was just like <laughs> yeah. dude it's just a book get out of here and so that kind of stuff i cannot stand but it is nice because i i feel like um at RP, I get to have my my hands in all sorts of different projects. I've been involved in you know apps, books, templates, yeah. and YouTube, and all sorts of stuff. And it does, um, it fits my personality well. It helps me like just make sure I like to think of myself as kind of like a quality control person. When somebody has an idea, they put it out. We say, okay, that's great. Let's just make sure it meets RP standards, and we'll roll with it. You're the, the RP peer review kind of system there. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I guess that's a, that's a, a nice way of saying a chromogeny dickhead. But, um, <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I, I wonder for myself, I think the, the only reason I managed to do fine with social media is because I kind of, not in a sense, grew up with it because I'm not like I'm like way younger than you at all. But I kind of jumped on it as soon as it was there. And it's kind of something I've slowly, I've grown with it and I've kind of, had the difficulties with it and got used to it so it's kind of like to me it's easy but i know for a lot of people when they're like trying to come into it and they've kind of avoided it it's like oh this is uncomfortable do you do twitter at all I, I completely avoided twitter i tried it for like i don't know a week and i was like i can't do this they made us do have a Twitter account when I was working as a professor at Temple just so students wouldn't poach your name. So they were like, just, just make an account and then whatever you want to do at that point is up to you. But just so students don't make a James Hoffman account and then they start posting like racist stuff, right? That's the idea. Um, so I tried to use it for a little while. It's literally like reading hieroglyphics to me and it makes me feel like an old man. I'm like, I'm only 34. I should be able to figure this stuff out. And I look at it and I'm like, what does this even say? What? What? I'm trying to follow people that I like, and it's like at blah 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 so and so link. I, I, I can't do it. 
I literally only go on there maybe when me and Charlotte are watching some like terrible uh, show that you probably shouldn't be watching that's just like killing brain cells but it's just fun to sit back and see idiots do stuff uh and like follow a hashtag tiger king. and see yeah something yes. like that where then you just follow a hashtag maybe it's hashtag tiger king and just see what people are saying it's just then i enjoy that aspect of it but that's about all i use twitter forever yeah so i feel i feel a little behind the times in that regard but it's better for me and then i find myself um i don't because i know i know a lot of people um it really does affect them hard. Yeah. Uh, and even not, not even just like getting negative stuff, like not somebody, somebody being a dick to you online, but even just like the screen time, the clicking, the, like the, uh, the dopamine kind of yep, like, yep. I didn't get enough likes on my post. Like now I feel bad. I got to post more. It's crazy. I definitely fall for that big time at like, at times I'm like, what? Like I recheck my phone, like every five minutes at one point, I'm like, nah, put it away chuck it away so whenever yeah. like for people like yourself like writing a whole ebook or checking it and when you need deep work like you can't be doing that with your phone all the time because it just completely destroys any productivity yeah it's such a distraction so i'm kind of glad to to put that a little bit yeah. away and this is good because uh although that seemed maybe off topic to some people i did want to catch up with you and just see kind of Obviously, people see you, James, and they kind of see Mike. And obviously, Mike shares quite a lot of his kind of goals and what he's doing on social media. But maybe they're interested in what's James doing? Uh, because I think whilst it's very individual to you, obviously, you apply the same principles and you are an individual as well and obviously incredibly clued up. So I think it's always interesting just like what you're working towards, what your training look is looking like at the moment, just out of interest. Yeah, for sure. So, um, you know, obviously I still work for RP full time. So that's, that takes up most of my day. And so I do a lot of stuff working on books, you know, whether it's the hypertrophy book, which hopefully will be out soon. I'm working on a book that uh, I spearheaded on more volume landmark stuff on sports. You know, there's a, uh, hopefully it's no surprise. There's some apps in development that we're working on that we think are going to be really cool. Uh, that's about all I can say on that one. And there's always just more and more content that we're kind of managing. Like we're trying to expand our YouTube presence and do all that stuff. So I'm trying to be involved in all that stuff. And I feel like I can contribute meaningfully and, and still do a good job. And, and uh, I still take some clients here there, but I've been reducing my client load quite a bit. Um, in terms of like training stuff, I'm kind of in like a fun spot for myself where I, um, I don't really do a lot of hard dieting anymore because I found that that was really what was sucking a lot of the, the joy and just time and frustration out of my life a lot of the times. And I got to a point um, where I had gotten like pretty big. I think the heaviest I got was around 250 pounds. So what's that, like 112-ish kilos somewhere Yeah, sounds there. about right. Um, and I was big and strong and you know, what most men aspire to be at some point where you're like, okay, I feel pretty good. But it just carrying that much body weight and the fuss and rigor it took to maintain that size for myself and the, the amount of things that excluded from my life in order to be that big just became, I just had this big epiphany where I was like, this sucks. Why do, why am I this big? I was, yeah, it's great. I can deadlift over 500 pounds for reps and I can squat over 400 for reps. This is fine. But I can't like go on hikes. I can't like spend time doing other things that I like to do. I like to be active and be outdoors and um, just live like an active lifestyle and being that big and always wondering like, oh, if I go on a hike today, is it going to screw up my leg session tomorrow? Or like, oh, I want to do this. I want to go hang out or I want to, you know, whatever. But I have this, this meal time that I kind of have to be fussy. And I just, at one point, I just kind of got over it. Yeah. And I'm not aspiring to be an athlete. I just aspiring to be like a fit healthy guy. And uh, I feel fortunate that I put in a lot of work in terms of getting to the level of buffness that I wanted to get to. And I still work on it to some degree, um, but I just don't diet as much anymore. So for me personally, what I do is I typically train hard all year and I take breaks like anyone would do, like any kind of deloading, resensitization kind of stuff. I do that. But I mostly train like MEV to MRV all the time in little kind of blocks of training, just like we would ask anyone else to. Um, and then sometimes I'll cut just to make sure I'm not getting too fat, which does tend to happen sometimes. Uh, but most of the time I just kind of eat what would be like a very typical kind of RP style diet. And then I might have a little bit less, a little bit more on some days. And I do a lot of kind of just like gain for lack of a better word, where I just train really hard and make like very slow, but tangible gains in strength. And I think I get a little bit bigger over time. And then every now and again, I get too fat and I cut back down and that's kind of it. And it, for me, it works really great because, uh, like I said, there's just like a lot of other things I wanted to do with my life. And I didn't want it to always revolve around like meal prepping, yeah. weighing myself, suffering all the time. And most people, I think, get to that point where they're like, this blows. And I don't know why I'm doing this anymore. And that was what it was for me. So 
I still like to train. I still like to train really hard, frankly. And actually, I'm overreached as fuck today. I had like a really gnarly leg workout, and it just took it out of me. And uh, I have to get through one more workout before my deload today, and I'm, I'm dreading it. Um, but yeah, I still, I still train. I still try and be strong. And I feel fortunate in that um, it allows me to do a lot of things that I like to do. So I kind of, I feel like I'm at the, the peak of the curve where I put in all the work in terms of getting how jacked I want to be. And now I can live my like weirdo Montana reclusive mountain man lifestyle where I can chop down trees and do all that stuff. So I feel good. I think that's probably refreshing for a lot of people to hear only because I think a lot of the listeners are of uh kind of a Mike Isratel type of mentality where it is about like optimization, work all the hard, like hard all the time. And maybe they feel like if they're not doing that, they're not giving themselves their best. They're not doing their best, but there's also enjoyment to be had from the process. So you need to make, make sure you're enjoying it. And so to hear that you're still ultimately doing that just to a lesser degree, I think is always nice. I know actually when you came over and presented, you had a presentation kind of talking through the different kind of people in the gym like your hardcore bodybuilder and then kind of your gym rat and then blah 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 and the amount of commitment you put towards it is going to probably it should differ uh it should you shouldn't expect yourself if you're just kind of looking for some general fat loss to be bodybuilder kind of hyper focused on everything exactly and i think that's a hard pill for a lot of people to swallow because we do and i think rp we are somewhat guilty of that in that we kind of pander to that hardcore mindset very often where we say like, this is the best way to go about it. And the best way is very, you know, rigorous and hard and and strict. And there are times where people should do that. You know, if you're trying to lose weight, because you you need to, for whatever reason, whether it's just purely a goal, or maybe you're over fat, and you need to improve your health, like, yeah, there is a time to be rigorous. But there are other times throughout your life, or throughout the same year, where you might be less rigorous. And it's okay to do that. And I think a lot of people get stuck into that hardcore, like, I am failing because I'm not weighing all my food all the time and I'm not meal prepping and I could have maybe pushed my RIR a little harder on this workout and I took it a little easier for whatever reason. It's like, that's okay. You can do that. It's not the end of the world. The the point of having some of these easier phases is so that you can rejuvenate and recharge for the harder ones when you need to do them. And I feel like hopefully as you get older and older in your training age, whatever that is, whether you're just training for health or for sport or whatever, um, the amount of hardcore mesocycles and blocks that you have to do should be going down because of the work that you've already put in, right? And it should be getting easier for you to maintain some level of balance. I remember having this epiphany when I was in um, grad school when we were kind of, Mike and I were really kind of learning how to do a lot of this stuff. And I had that thought of like, man, I really hate going from like, <laughs> at the time I was going from like, you know, 200 to like 235 pounds. And I'm looking at my weight charts and they're like huge peaks and valleys. And I was thinking to myself, you know, as I get more buff and I get better at this, my peaks and valleys should be much smaller, right? Over time. And that's kind of the goal for most mm. people, I think, is where you uh, you might have to make some big changes in the beginning and you might see these wild fluctuations in your lifestyle and in your weight and in your diet and behaviors and stuff. But as you get older and get more practice with it, those waves become tighter and tighter and tighter and to the point where you really don't have to make these big drastic changes anymore. Just because you've done it, you've been there, you're at a point that's good and you don't have to see like huge changes. Like I will never find myself probably above 230 pounds ever again, just because I won't allow it to happen. It's not because that I am afraid of going there. It's just like my lifestyle doesn't allow me to do that anymore and for good reason. So I hope other people, you know, if, I don't know if it's, it helps them at all, but it's okay to keep in mind that you don't have to be hardcore all the time. When you have serious lofty goals and a, you know, a timeline in which you want to meet them, you should be hardcore and you should take it seriously. But there are other times and other opportunities throughout your life where you can sit back and enjoy all the hard work that you've already put in and not be thinking about what you're doing later today and tomorrow. Soak it in, be in the moment and say, you know what? I look pretty goddamn good. I'm pretty strong. I'm whatever, right? And life is pretty good and I'm going to enjoy it. Yeah, I think that's it's well said. And I think even for Renaissance periodization, and even we're very much like normally it's like the optimal for our best outcomes. And I think in, in some ways it's in the nature of what we're doing in that people are coming to us for results. So you tend to talk about how best to get the results. You don't talk about kind of drawing back. But I imagine even if you work with people like this, uh, I do on occasion where they're almost too, they're past optimal and they're into like trying to hard work just work harder for no extra benefit and you have to almost draw them back. So it's useful yes. for them even to hear sometimes actually drawing back and kind of just maintaining at times or kind of chilling out, reprioritizing your life actually just helps the whole process move forward. 
out of interest, James, are you currently specializing? Do you specialize now at the moment with your mesocycles? I have on occasion. So I don't really do a lot of massing at all. So like I, um, I have a hard time justifying in my mind actually doing a specialization phase. Uh, but what I have done is a couple of arm phases. Uh, and it actually came up on this week's webinar. I was laughing <laughs> because I have like super like wingspan, right? I've always yeah. had chronically long arms. So it always makes my arms look you know, childish, right? I've tried to be like a buff fitness guy. I'm like, oh, and everyone's like, get your weak ass arms out of here. And I'm like, oh, damn it. Um, so that's one of my like flagging points historically have been my arms and my legs. And I brought my legs up a long time ago and I'm happy with those. And now my arms is just continually, continuing to be like a sore spot for me. So every now and again, I'll do like an arm focused phase. And I've had, had I had, had no, excuse me, I have had good results um, doing so. But one of the problems, and I know you can probably relate to this too, is when you are training basically at like a maintenance level of calories, you tend to have like superhuman training abilities because you're well fed, you're well recovered, and you actually don't have the stress of dieting, which sometimes can be even worse. So for me, I end up finding that like if I do a specialization phase, I have to often switch it to just like upper body because my arms can just train indefinitely at that point. You know what I mean? It gets to a point where it's like, okay, I can do like 15 sets per session, five to six times per week, um, which just gets to be kind of yeah. ridiculous. And I think a lot of it has to do with just that those muscles are just relatively small uh, on me specifically, but just on your body in general. Right. And so it, it helps to then just have like, um, instead of like a, an arms and delts phase for myself, it helps to have just like an upper body focused phase where I can just soak in a lot more um, training volume on some of the bigger muscles, which then has more fatigue limitations. Whereas like the arms just, just seem to go forever. Yeah, I, I can see that. And, uh, I've just, I'm still, I, I guess I'm a decade in of serious training. So I'm coming to the point where specialization is making more and more sense. But I've always been put off by it because I'm just like, I just want to grow everything. <laughs> I just don't, I don't want to have yeah. to put anything on the back burner. Um, it's hard too because the, the, I think, and maybe I'm guilty of perpetuating this too, but I think when some people think specialization, they think like one or two muscles and then everything else at MV. Right. Whereas really, like if you're an intermediate or even like an early advanced, that might actually mean just putting a whole bunch of things at MEV yeah. and just keeping them there and then training the, whatever, you know, one or two muscles that you want to a bigger window. And I think that's the, the what I am probably guilty of doing myself and maybe perpetuating in that you, you don't have to back off of everything so dramatically. Now, if you're like Mike and you're an advanced, you know, pretty big person, you might not have the bandwidth to train everything at MEV anymore. And that might mean you might train most things at maintenance volume so that you can grow your chest or your arms or your back, whatever. Um, but I think like for somebody like us, uh, you could very easily do a specialization phase where you just put everything else down to MEV level so it doesn't feel like, oh, I'm not, I'm, I'm not doing anything. It's like, yeah, I did something. And then you can still train those other things really hard. Yeah, I think I do a, a little bit of a, a, like not full specialization in that sense, but so kind of like some weeks I'll be like, I, I know if I add here and here, it's going to be too much, but I want to grow here mostly. So I'll leave that where it is and I'll push here. So quite often for me on like, I'm fortunate with arms, they just don't need much. So I can keep them basically quite nice and low. And then I can spread volume to like delts and prioritize that them much more. Ah. So yeah, it's no, it's very interesting to hear about your training and actually that perspective. Cause I, I always think by asking these questions, especially if like smart people like yourself, it has more authority as well. So people understand it better and maybe are more likely to then take that advice on board and move forward with it. I hope so. Like, so for me, like the limiting factor on my training is kind of has now become like the other things that I'm doing in my lifestyle, which is like walking the dogs, doing yard work, like chopping, using the chainsaw, chopping trees, hauling logs, like doing that kind of stuff. And that's where I actually find most of the limitations now versus before it would be like, all right, how many sets of biceps can I do per week? 50? Fuck, this sucks dick, right? So now it's more of like, okay, I have to train a reasonable amount because I enjoy training and I want to be strong and fit. Uh, but I have all this other stuff that I want to do and that really tends to put a cap. And so like, <laughs> this is going to sound really stupid, but um, I have to put a cap on, for example, um, carrying logs for the fire pit. So I use a, a furnace to heat the home, right? So that means you have to be taking wood in and out pretty much all day, every day. Um, and I found that uh, carrying the big, I have like a big Ikea bag that I carry the logs in. And that is really starting to fuck up my forearms really bad to a point where it's, it's becoming a problem. And I had to set a cap on that activity where I could only do three, like three, <laughs> three carries, like three, uh, what's it called? What's that called? Shit. 
anyways, a strongman event where you carry the things in your hands, uh, uh, three of those per day. And that's like my limit. Otherwise I can't actually train because I start to have forearm problems. So I basically have like a, a quota, a MRV <laughs> per great. day of some activities. Otherwise it fucks me up too bad. Hey, Pascal here. I just wanted to take the moment to talk about our membership site. Inside, you'll find a thriving forum, an extensive exercise library, courses, presentations, and research reviews. All I need you to do is hit the link in the description below and sign up. I think it's actually, that reminds me of, so you said arms, you can go really high in volume. Yeah, farmer's carry, that's the one. Uh, Mm -hmm. With me for like calves, and I think this has come up on your RP uh, webinars before where like my feet sometimes can be the limiting factor to my calf training where the calf yeah. muscles, mine just insert so high and they barely get involved when I walk and stuff. I barely feel them. I can do a lot of steps. My calves don't feel tired. My feet feel tired and I end up getting feet issues by pushing my calf training so high. So really, yeah, I've I have had that. had that in the past. I know exa- I've felt that exact problem. Do you have like a really high calf MRV too? Yeah. Yeah. They can go yep. like... Yep. I can't even remember the last time they got sore. It might have been like BFR training or something I did like one time. They got re- like, it was really novel. So they just- Do you do it? Do you do like Mike style where you take like less than a minute break on, on those? I for have that started reason? to because it just takes forever. Yeah, it takes forever. <laughs> I remember uh, one time I had, I had Mike writing my training and uh, this was back in the day when my legs were a, a serious weak point. Uh, and he gave me, it was like the small of equivalent of a calf program. <laughs> it was fucking like all calves all the time. And I was like, Mike, I'm so sick of doing these fucking calf raises. Can we do something? I was doing it like 10 hours a week, it felt like, of calf raises. And, but the thing was, it worked. That was the other thing. You know what I mean? Where it's like, okay, yeah. calves look okay now. <laughs> I guess it's what was it was it uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger would always talk about like I don't know doing a hundred calf raises a day or something he'd say just whenever you're like waiting around just do some calf raises wherever you are do some calf raises you could probably tolerate <laughs> yeah. it remember his old pictures he would like stand in lakes and stuff so you couldn't see his calves because they were that bad I didn't realize that was why that's hilarious that's great <laughs> oh, yeah if you ever get a chance to read his um book he talks about it I actually the Arnold's Encyclopedia is it in mm-hmm. there? Oh, okay. I yeah. need to, I think I bought that just because like you buy it. Of course, because you I, need it on the bookshelf. That's I don't why. I think I ever read it. I think I've just got it and it's just there. Uh, kind I mean, of just it's a lot of tokens. stupid, you know, like <laughs> yeah. Arnold kind of what you would expect, but there are some like funny insights that he has on some of that stuff. I like that. Cool. Um, so apart from your own experiences, obviously you've been coaching for years. Uh, so I thought that'd be something cool to talk about. Uh, and actually, actually before that, it was to talk about your weighted vest. Um, that's kind of, it came in uh, big time. And I know, I think you'd even been applying it before it had become kind of uh, proposed by, I think it was James Krieger and his competitor who I've completely forgotten the name of. So I apologize to him. Yes. Uh, but yeah, I, I think you were already using it and just love to hear your experiences and if you ever apply it to clients. Yeah, yeah. So all, all kudos here to James Krieger because he did the actual legwork in terms of researching. I, I just like fucked around, right? And uh, sure enough, like luck, luckily what I did came to fruition from his work. Um, so all, all kudos to him. I, I was not a, a forerunner in this at all. Um, but yeah, so I've been using the weighted vests for a while. I was mostly using it because Mel and I had started doing like a ruck training uh, idea for RP. And we were thinking about like, okay, well, we both like backpacking. We both like hiking. We both, and she's into hunting. I don't hunt, but she does. Um, and a lot of that is like rucking stuff. So could we start doing, you know, some kind of like ruck design program? And it turns out the weighted vest is really nice for that because it also uh, causes a lot less wear and tear on the common points of contact that a backpack has. So like if you wear a backpack, A, all the weight's always going this way and it's always like on your shoulders or if you have a hip strap, you can use that too. But it does tend to have a lot of wear and tear. So the vest, you put it on and it's pretty uniform, which is nice. It's just all over the top of your upper body. So you don't have as much just like contact points. It's just much more uniform. So we started playing around with the idea with the vest. And so the vest research on rucking is really cool. Turns out if you want to get good at rucking, it's more of a strength thing, right? So uh, it turns out people um, who need to do like a lot of heavy rucking uh, it pays them very large uh, dividends to be very strong. Now, there's a cardiovascular component there as well, but using the uh, getting strong makes you better at carrying things. Big surprise, right? So we kind of played around with that idea for a while, and we also started thinking like, okay, well, this can make your cardio harder, but could it also you know, potentially have a, a role in weight loss? And what we found is that if you wear the vest 
for your cardio, like during your ruck training, it's just an insignificant amount of time throughout the day for you to actually have a meaningful change in your energy expenditure, right? So your energy expenditure just goes up as you're doing cardio, putting the vest on makes it a little bit harder. But in terms of like the net effect on your calories per day in and out doesn't seem to have a big impact. Uh, the next option is to wear a vest or something all the time, a la Dragon Ball Z, where they would wear the weighted clothing, right? That's the same idea there. Um, they would just wear it all the time. And the problem that you run into there is uh, the vest becomes very oppressive immediately, depending on how heavy it is, right? And so we started playing around with some different ones, and I started using some lighter ones. And what I found was that, you know, anything that's kind of like less than 10% of your body weight is usually okay. And I would say probably a better place to start is like one to 5% of your body weight. Um, it's like a really easy place to jump in because if you put like, so if you're a normal, let's say like 120 pound female or maybe 160 pound male, if you start with like a 15 pound vest, it's going to feel like it's crushing you mm -hmm. all the time. And even though a 15 pound vest really isn't that heavy, right? You're like, Oh, I can squat way more than that. The vest is, that shouldn't be anything. No, wearing it all the time, even sitting becomes kind of a chore. And so starting off with something like, you know, one, two, three, four, five pounds, you know, maybe like two kilos, um, is much more manageable for somebody just to put it on. And if you wear it all day, it actually starts to impact your total energy expenditure a lot more. So it's a lot more useful in that regard for weight loss. So I think the first kind of problem that we ran into with using the vests is people were mistaking what they were using the vest for. They thought if I wear a vest during cardio, it's gonna help me lose weight. All wearing a vest does during your cardio is makes you better at carrying heavy stuff, right? That's the idea, which is, you know, if you want to be good at rucking, that's great. If you want to be like leaner, uh, it's probably not as helpful to you. So if you want to be leaner, it turns out just wearing a small vest, something that is barely noticeable to you, just causes you to spend a little bit more energy throughout the day, actually is pretty efficacious. And it's not like a, a huge day-to-day -day thing, but it's one of those kind of compounding effect things where you put it on, you always do it every day, you wear it during your active hours, and it just increases your energy expenditure a little bit. And then one thing that I found, and then J James Krieger also seems to have found the same thing. Let me rephrase that. James Krieger found it. I observed it. Um, is that uh, it, it definitely made a, had a hunger sating effect where for whatever reason, wearing the vest, I would have, I would still have like the urge to eat. And this is hard to describe, but I would feel like, you know, like when you're bored and you want to eat mm -hmm. that kind of feeling, I would have those feelings, but I wouldn't have like the crippling hunger that I would normally have during the cut. I would still get hungry at times, just wouldn't have as much of that or wouldn't come on as, as quickly or as hard. And so I found that wearing the vest, I would be able to just go about my daily business and I just kind of would feel the urge to eat, but I would never feel like, oh, that like gut punch, like I'm really starving and fatigued. So um, it seems to be useful in that. And I don't wanna speak too soon because I think there's still more research on that that needs to be done, but they seem to be tying it into some kind of um, force and tension sensor uh, mm. in your bones which seems to indicate for in a very layperson sense, like, oh, you're carrying around this much weight, you don't need to eat anymore, kind of a response. Now, don't quote me on that, but that seems to be kind of the idea. And uh, it's something that does seem to work. The only thing that uh, you have to keep in mind with using it for weight loss, again, is like you want to use a relatively light one that you can wear all day. And I have kind of ramped mine up where like I'll start wearing it. Like the first step is to just start wearing one and wearing one that's light and manageable, right? And it's hard enough because you always find an excuse to take it off. You're like, oh, I'm getting in the car. I'm going on, you know, in the tube or whatever. I'll take this vest off so I don't look weird. Um, you always be finding excuses to take it off. The key is to start making it a routine habit and start with something that's very light and manageable. And then you can start increasing the weight of whatever vest that you want to use. And so like when I was doing a kind of the tail end of one of the cuts that I ran with the vest, I was using like at the end, like a 12 pound vest and I weigh 220 pounds, right? So that's a, a small fraction of my body weight. So you don't need to get crazy with a lot of the weights. And I think that's where people really kind of miss the mark on the vest is they think yeah. the more weight, the better. And it's like, no, the more consistent that you can do it, the better. And in that case, it turns out the more consistent is usually like the most manageable and kind of lightest option rather than the like 70 pound vest that you can use for cardio. It's, so I lived when I was we used to live in Orange County, which for those of you who don't know, is kind of like a bougie part of California. Um, right. It's in between L.A. and San Diego. So there you go. Um, but uh, I would wear I had like a, an adjustable vest that had like like uh, sandbags yeah. you put in. Right. And it, so it looked like a fucking bomb. Yeah. Right? It looked like a, I was a terrorist. And so I'd be walking around with my bomb vest and had my like cardio headphones going and all the moms like waiting outside of school <laughs> for their kids would just be like you fucking weirdo um so it was definitely a scene it definitely like made me look very strange um 
but it works and I, I enjoy it. I haven't done it lately just because I haven't really been trying to lose weight. Uh, but I think after the holiday season, I'm going to get back on the, the less fat wagon, get back on the vest training and get to it because it is something that I have found to be useful. I have yeah. a couple clients who do it and they seem to be into it. Um, yeah, but it's, it's it's something too that like keep in mind. It's not like a it's not like a hack. It's not like you're you're gonna like cheat the system here. Like you're gonna wear something that makes you heavier. So there is a systemic fatigue cost that has to be paid in that regard. So it's not like a freebie. And the downside of using the vest is that it has a top down effect, which means it's axial loading you all the time, which is going to increase that fatigue cost. So it's fair to say that your systemic MRV will be affected. Other things like your erectors might be affected, even something like your calves. I found that my calves actually would start to crap out pretty quick on some of my cardio walks because of the extra weight. And then of course you get conditioned to it, the more you do it, mm. the less they crap out. But in the beginning, it's definitely like, oh, you're just taking a walk and you're like, man, I'm feeling it in my calves. We're getting like a wicked calf pump right now. What's going on? Well, you weigh more. You know, you have to move that around and it's going to take a, your toll on you. So it's a, it's a toy that I recommend, but as with everything, ease into it. And don't think it's going to change everything that you know about dieting and training. You still have to do the same basic stuff. Fantastic. That was a really nice overview, actually. And I've just remembered the the competitor who used it was Eric. And I think it was Eric Lazar, might be his last name. I might be mispronouncing oh, the last yes. name, but it was Eric. Right. Uh, and I remember he was even wearing kind of uh, ones around the ankles, like weight around the wrists, like all of this, like, because I think he was almost replacing the weight that he lost. So he was in the end carrying quite a lot, like kilos upon kilos. Uh, but I think it's great you've introduced the fact that you don't want to start because people always think heavier better uh and i know well, i bought one and it's 10 kilos so i'm already like i need to buy a lighter one <laughs> i can't just go ahead and use a 10 kilo vest and like you can use those vests it just makes you better at carrying heavy vests that's the problem right so there's like a specificity thing and it's 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 such a funny and i hate to go in a different direction but there's huge parallels between this and other things that we see in sports. So for example, and I brought this up on the webinar more than a few times. If you look at the, re the literature on resisted sprinting, so people who do like sled toes, and you look at resisted jumping, so like counter movement jumps with a weight, you see the exact same fucking thing, right? Heavier is not better. Heavier just makes you better at jumping with heavier weights, right? There's a sweet spot, which is usually around within zero to 10% of your body weight, in which adding a little bit of resistance is just enough to make it harder without breaking like your mechanics on what you're doing or deviating too far outside of force and velocity relationships for what you're doing. So the same thing is here where it's like, if you just keep adding heavier weight, you're just, you're, you're essentially just doing something else. You're not doing what you seek to do. You're just essentially make you're, you're just doing a strongman lifestyle at that point. Whereas adding a lighter weight, which is not going to cause you to deviate from your normal activities too much actually will seem to have a benefit there i think i i have pictures in my mind of like people using like weighted baseball bats like really heavy baseball bats and swinging or like golf i've seen it with like golf swings on like the cable stack and they're using like a huge amount of weight to do this golf swing or something it's like a golf club weighs like a it's like a tenth of what you're trying to swing here so yeah, yeah i see exactly. that completely some people will do like the fit like a, a, um, a potentiation effect where they'll, they'll put like the knob on the bat and that's like the perfect idea. You make it a little bit heavier. Mm. Now your nervous system's accustomed to that heavier load. And now you can maybe swing that bat a little more powerfully. But like trying to do the cable stack, like, <laughs> that's just probably not a good use of your time. It does look cool. Yeah. People are like, oh man, that guy must do sports. <laughs> so yeah, obviously the benefits were essentially like an upregulation, I guess, in energy expenditure through doing your normal neat activities whilst wearing the vest. And then obviously there was some kind of relationship towards hunger there as well. Was there anything I think James talked about, and I'm pretty sure Eric was convinced that it allowed him to maintain more muscle doing it this way. Do you think there's any kind of regulators in terms of having the weight on you so the body's kind of holding on to more muscle tissue somehow through that mechanism? Could be. I think it's like such an insignificant, I, I mean, so if you're using a light load, which is what we're recommending that you do, I think the amount of load is so insignificant that ah, maybe in some regards, like maybe in like your calves or in your erectors, you might be like kind of helping you achieve an MV into some degree. But I think it's such a small effect. I would be surprised. I will say if you're using a heavy vest, and I think in, in their case, they were basically, like you said, he was replacing the weight that he had lost. 
Um, that's a substantial amount of load at that point, right? And that actually may be contributing more to an MV and maintaining your muscle mass. I actually find that when I'm doing the heavy ruck training, so I got up to, you know, like 100 pounds on my vest at one point when I was doing the ruck stuff, my traps actually grew a little bit. Like the, my back got bigger uh, at the top just from having that isometric load on my back for so long. Um, so it's, it's definitely feasible. I think that with the, within the practical recommendations that we're using in, in terms of don't use a, a lot of weight, probably not. Yeah. But if you start in, increasing the load to the point that they were doing it, maybe. I think it's, it's feasible. Cool. Fantastic. Um, and then on a related note, kind of talking about uh, non-exercise activity thermogenesis, like NEAT. So step counts. Um, how do you like to, do you use them with clients? Do you get them to track steps? And how do you like to practically apply that in terms of like, I don't know, managing it up or down or keeping it steady? Yeah, so step counts is something that I have poo-pooed for a long time. And more recently, I think I've actually been finding them to be more useful, especially with um, kind of the COVID situation right now. I think it's particularly yeah. a useful tool. So usually for what I would do with clients is give them kind of like a, a, an LISS style cardio quota that I would ask them to hit per day. And I would try to make some point of saying like, this is not actually cardio. It's just an excuse for you to increase your need. It's just like, just go move around for 30 minutes, right? That's the idea. Um, and of course, they'd always think like, oh, I got to get on treadmill and like get my heart rate up to this and it's like no if that's not it it's not cardio it's just it's just an excuse a preset amount of time to move around and so a lot of people are, are pretty good with that they'll say like oh yeah i'm getting that done and they'll just walk around for 30 and then you ramp it up maybe 45 maybe even 60 minutes a day um some people will struggle with that especially if they are in the situation now where maybe they're working from home and their lifestyle is kind of topsy-turvy from what they're used to and you can start having them do the step count and a really simple way to start is just by making them aware that the step count is a thing, right? And you can download free apps. You can, I know Dr. Mike has a, a thing that he's a big fan of, and I, I can't remember what it is, but maybe I can find out and, and send you guys a link or something. Uh, but it's just like, you know, it's just a regular old step counter thing. Um, and some of them are better than others. But the point being here is it doesn't matter if you have the fanciest one or the free one that you got on your phone. Once you become aware of what your baseline kind of numbers are, right, whatever that is, and of course, they're going to be more or less sensitive depending on the device and the software, yada, yada, yada. But once you're starting to get aware of what your baseline is, then you can actually start using that number to increase it and actually keep your need a little bit higher throughout the day. And I think for people who are working from home or maybe doing a new kind of work situation or are busy and actually can't have a lot of dedicated time to go and do 45 minutes on the treadmill or 45 minutes walking around the neighborhood, the step counts are really nice alternative where they can just kind of keep track of how much they're moving around. And instead of having, you know, a lunch break where you're, you're going to take 30 minutes and sit and enjoy a nice coffee and a sandwich, maybe you take something quick to go slam it and just kind of watch a movie on Netflix for 30 minutes while walking around the office, something like that, you know, basic stuff. So usually like what we recommend is just become aware of the step count first, take like one to two weeks of just don't do anything different. Just do your normal thing, whatever your routine is that you're currently on, keep it, look at your step count, look at the average that you get for like one to two weeks. And then from that point on, you can start to set some a little bit higher loftier goals on your step counts. If for example, you're trying to lose weight. And that's a really easy way to get started. For more advanced people, like you can actually start having like step goals that you're seeking, but it's hard to kind of Google some of that stuff and say, well, what's a reasonable step goal? Well, it's like, well, it depends on what you do. Like if, if you look at somebody like me, I have a huge step count because I'm walking back and forth getting logs all fucking day from my yard, right? Whereas somebody else who works like in a downtown office, maybe they sit in front of a computer all day, they're going to have a really low step count. So sometimes it's kind of a comparing apples to oranges. So that's why I like to use your own data and say like, well, what is my norm? What is the thing that I do more often than not? And then I'm going to adjust that from there. Or if I try to compare, you know, what, I'm doing compared to like Mel's out hiking right now. So her step count is going to be nice and high compared to somebody else. They're all going to be different. So it's kind of hard to say like, well, 10,000 is a really good number. Like, is it that might be like way too much for somebody who might only need a couple thousand to get going, but it is useful. And I think for people who, um, particularly hate doing cardio. Now, like I granted, it's like cheeky and taboo to say, I hate cardio. Like, congratulations. You hate cardio. You're unique, right? We all hate it. Um, but I think if it's if it causes you like immense pain and suffering to do it that way, step counts a great alternative because you get the same effect yeah. without the drudgery of being on the treadmill or the bike for that one. I know the the analogy I always think of is like kind of like turning your kind of 
a car on, but just like sitting there, you're just burning energy at this point. You're not trying yeah, to like yeah, achieve like anything idle. through this. Yeah. Um, and I, I do it exactly the same way. I don't think I, I don't know when I started doing it that way, but it became very obvious that like you said, you can't just give someone 10,000. You need to see where they're at first. So I tend to do the same, get them to track it for a week, get an average. And then I'm like, if it looks fine, just leave it. Or if we want to up it or up it or down it. And the only question I would have, James, I don't know if you know uh, kind of of any information. I don't even know if it's out there. Is there like a minimum you'd like to see someone achieving for like, assuming we're talking people training maybe four plus times a week for hypertrophy, higher volume. Is there then a minimum someone should be achieving just for like health and well-being, do you think? There probably is, though I, I, I typically would say like if you're doing hyper, like good hypertrophy training four times per week, you're pretty much hitting your exercise quota at that point that you need. You're going above and beyond what you need for general health. I think there's definitely like a cardiovascular component that you could entertain with like either some dedicated cardio or step counting. What that is, I don't know. What I can tell you is that some common recommendations that you'll see in like ACSM and health promotion kind of stuff is like 15 to 20 minutes, two times per week is enough to hit like your basic cardiovascular needs for in terms of exercise. That's the, that's like exercise walking. So like a brisk walk, that's enough for that's you mad. to like not be dying of heart disease. <laughs> um, so, you know, take that and, and estimate how many steps are, are from there. Probably not a ton. And if you live, the other thing is like, if you live an active lifestyle, and I think that's probably the biggest mitigator. Like if you're somebody who's always just, you're, you're not a couch potato, right? If you're somebody who's not a couch potato, you're probably good. You don't even have to count it. And frankly, like if you're not dieting, you might not have to count them at all. Like you might only count them when you start doing a diet program just so you can use it as a tool to help you with your weight loss. I think for people though, who are, who, who might find themselves in that couch potato mode a lot of the time, like when they're not at work, they're, you know, on the couch doing Netflix. Yeah. You might start thinking about hitting a minimum of steps. What that is, I'm not sure, but I would say, you know, Again, like 15 minutes twice a week of brisk walking, whatever that is, it can't be that much. What, like a, Not a much thousand? <laughs> yeah. Something? I don't know. Something silly. That's like per week. Yeah. <laughs> so there's definitely, there's definitely some number out there, but I think if you're exercising regularly and you're not, and you're living an active lifestyle, you probably don't have to worry about it. Interesting. That's awesome. And then on the other hand, have you ever had it with clients where you've had to kind of reduce it down? Like where they've just yes. wanted to add and add and add and they get a bit of, potentially a bit obsessed or yeah, going over too much. Yeah. So you kind of have a couple, couple situations where one, like if you have somebody who's doing like more than an hour of cardio per day or that equivalent of like doing steps, a very reasonable question can be made of like, you probably could tolerate more training at this point, right? If you can tolerate that much cardio and or just activity, like you could probably just train more at this point. So it seems like systemic fatigue or even local fatigue is not an issue for you. So that that's usually my first concern. So they'll send me their little mesocycle summary sheet and everything will be like, great. And then they'll be like, I did an hour and a half of cardio per day. I'm like, all sets get bumped up by two. Now let's see how that goes, right? MEV and MRV all go up by two, ship the whole thing up, right? Um, the other situation that I have found, and this is something it's a little, you know, taboo to talk about, I suppose, but I, I get to what I call black hole clients where um, they just want to obliterate themselves in a non-productive way. And sometimes that's tied in with like disordered eating behavior. Sometimes it's yeah. not. Um, but there are, there, I have had clients where I'm just, you know, it gets to a point where it's just like, what do you want out of this? Do you want to just be infinite, infinitely smaller to the point? Like, that's why I call them black hole clients. Cause it's like, they just, you, you look amazing, you're healthy, you're buff, you're strong, you're everything that you want. But some, for some reason, you just want to keep like doing cardio stuff until you weigh less. And what that weight is seems to just keep going down, 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 down infinitely to a black hole status. So I have had people where you, I think, there's, I struggle with this one because there's not a right or wrong answer, but I think there's only so much you can do as a, as a, like if you're in my position or I think it's, you're, you're in a very similar position where maybe you're doing remote coaching and you mm -hmm. say, you know, like, hey, maybe take step up, step back, look at where you are, be in the moment right now because you're, you're thinking about like what you want tomorrow, what you want next week, what you want next year. Be in the moment right now. Look at where you are. Where you are is fantastic. It took a long time and a lot of work, whether it was diet, training, cardio, all of the above. And now you've got abs, you got veins, you're strong. You have, you know, like people like your Instagram pictures, whatever it is, you're there. You did it. Why do you want to be 
infinitely smaller? Or why do you want to do all these other crazy things? And sometimes you can kind of help people get there. And then other times you have to take it to the next level, which is usually getting clinical help, whether it's like mm -hmm. a psychiatrist, psychologist, something along those lines, or even if it's disordered eating, like, you know, you might have to get them with a nutritionist or a medical doctor. It does happen. And so, yeah, I find that sometimes you do have to get people to dial it back and you have to get them to recognize like, why are you continuing to do this? What more do you want? Do you just want to weigh 50 pounds, you know, 25 kilos? Like that's no good. Nobody wants that. That's crazy. Um, yeah. And I think sometimes the cardio can be the guilty. I, I say cardio, but what I mean is that yeah. the neat activities can be the, the big perpetuating factor there. Yeah. I think it's unfortunately like everything there's, you can use it the right way and then unfortunately it also gets abused towards the wrong way and i think it is that type of person who is like more is better and they're trying to burn off food that they've eaten or something and they maybe get a bit obsessed with beating the numbers and things and i've had to remove kind of not remove the watch off their arm but tell them just use a different watch put like, it away, put yeah, it away. Put away. Uh, absolutely awesome hi guys steve here just wanted to take a moment of your time to remind you of our online coaching service at Revive Stronger, we pride ourselves on providing personalized service that will take your physique and knowledge to the next level. If you're interested, check the description and sign up. Um, so the next question I had for you, James, uh, and uh, a lot of the people who keep up with you and Mike and your webinars will know that you have your skeptical kind of uh, stare. Uh, it reminds yes. me a bit of um, what's this? Oh, Futurama and uh, the main character. And there's that meme where he's like doing something. Oh, Fry. Fry, that's the one. He does that kind of like... <laughs> I'm sure yes. there's something, I'm, I've got something in my head now. Uh, so anyway, you have this skeptical look and often it's around things like where people are like, I don't know, they have an MRV of 50 for every single muscle group or something absolutely crazy like that. When someone is kind of, and they may be listening to the podcast, they may be really kind of like, I, I really truly think I am there. What the kind of factors do you, if you have any checkpoints, what do you get to look over to make sure like, are you really there or do you need to get some of these things in check before you move to that point? Yeah, yeah, really good question. So like our, my old uh, graduate school mentor, Dr. Stone used to say, you're special, just like everyone else. Um, so there's kind of this little snowflake mentality where you kind of have that like, I'm an outlier, and it kind of has like a thrilling uniqueness to it. But the reality is, is that most people aren't outliers. So if you find yourself suspecting that you are an outlier, it's not that it's not that it's possible. It's just more likely that you are not right. And it's more likely that something is Right. And so the common example, like you mentioned, is when people say like, oh, I have an MRV of like 200 or whatever, some crazy number, right? And when we hear that, and this is going to sound bad, bear with me. But typically, when we see that, it's usually like a 70 kilo male who's like 22 years old, and you watch their lifting video, and they have terrible lifting form and have no clue what they're doing. Right. And it's one of those where you just you just know, because you're like, you're like I, I was there. I did all the same shit. I know exactly what you're doing. And you're a little bit misguided. So I'm going to help you get there. But I give you that skeptical eye because what, what usually is happening is you're using the, the kind of the science stuff to try and justify like doing weird stuff and saying that you're an outlier. So usually what we look for is like, okay, in the case of like a really high MRV, the first one that I'll usually go to is like, have you individualized your technique for whatever movements that you're using in training. And so typically what we find is that most people will just be doing we kind of jokingly will call movement training rather than muscle training. So you watch them do bench press and it's just like this kind of shit, right? And you're like, yeah, of course your bench press MRV is a thousand because you're doing crappy bench presses, right? And so what we do is we say, okay, why don't we take a look at that technique? Are you getting a good mind muscle connection? Are you using, you know, controlled eccentrics, maybe a pause or something on your, some of your techniques? Are you actually feeling it in your chest by the time you're done? Because if you're not feeling it in your chest and you're calling that a set of chest, it's effectively just garbage volume at that point, right? So that's usually the, the first skeptical. Um, actually, that's probably the, the main one. I'm trying to think of what are the other ones that usually come up but that's usually, it's like 90% of the time, it's because people are doing movement training and not muscle training. And that's okay. All of us, if you come from a sporting background, myself yeah. included, um, that's what you're trained to do. You're trained to do movement training. You're trained to move a lot of weight. You're trained to move really fast. And you're not really concerned about like, did I get a good pump? I don't know. Am I going to rate it a two or a three? I'm not sure. Uh, you don't care about that shit. You're just it's like, okay, how much weight's on the bar? Okay, five reps, boom, boom, done. Uh, so that's usually the thing for me is... Um, people who are, they're being thoughtful on, this is, this is, this is the skeptical eyebrow right here. You're being really thoughtful on the complicated stuff 
but you're completely missing the basic stuff. You're overlooking the fundamental stuff and you're trying to look at it three steps ahead of where you actually are. So you're, you're concerned about what your MEV is and your MRV is, but you don't know how to bench press. That's the problem, right? That's where that skeptical eyebrow comes out. And we just say, and that's okay. You can be in that place. You can be that guy. It shows that you're ambitious and that you want to learn. But at the same time, recognize where you're at. Let's go back to the drawing board and let's fix some of this basic shit, right? The same thing like what we talked about with the recovery principles so, for so long. Like most people want to jump into massage therapy and cryo. And it's like, yeah, that's fine. Did you do the basic shit right? Like, is, are, you, are your training volumes good? Or is your lifestyle reasonable? Is your nutrition reasonable? No? Oh, we'll fix that shit. Doesn't matter how much massage you get at this point, right? Same idea here. So usually when we kind of look at some of those things, we say like, are you overstepping the foundational stuff and looking at the advanced stuff? And more often than not, I think that's where that is. And that's where like the skeptical eye comes from because I, because you, you know it, you know that's what you're doing. I know you don't know what you're doing and that's okay. Um, you can get there. Um, and the thing is like, you just don't want to, if you, again, if you find yourself in one of those positions where you're like, I think I have the highest MRV ever. Like, you probably don't. You're probably doing something wrong. <laughs> and that's okay. Um, but it's the idea of like, um, am I truly an outlier? Like, probably not. You're most likely a normal person, uh, like all of us, and you just have to tweak a few things. Um, there are some people, though, like who have really, really low MEV MRV windows. There are some people who have really, really high MEV MRV windows. And that's perfectly okay, too. The ones that we list on the website in our hypertrophy hub are averages. This is where like we expect most people to fall under. You might be like on the tails of those recommendations. You might even be outside of those recommendations a lot. But if you're like two magnitudes outside of those recommendations, I would say probably just need to look inward at what you're doing, reevaluate your training. Am I actually doing a good job with all of my exercise techniques? Am I doing a good job with like my frequency per week? Things like that. And then go from there. I really, I like that because it's, the, the kind of the thing I'm thinking of is people putting the cart before the horse and that's exactly. like that's like the saying that was ringing true there and uh, technique and it seems so fundamental yet so many people like to skip over it and actually it's it's crazy because like you said their pump kind of you talk about pump disruption uh, particularly you guys focus on that I'd say more than maybe some other kind of people within the evidence-based sphere but for me those kind of ideas and that my muscle connection that that kind of links to kind of bridge the gap from a lots of strength training literature and kind of maybe sport literature that where there's great textbooks, but there's not that for the bodybuilder. But when I started focusing more on those sort of factors, I just started getting way more from my training where I, like I would, I'd just go through the motions, go through the movements. I'd be like, oh yeah, I'm doing a squat. That's good for my quads. And I'd barely grow my quads and I grow like massive adductors and like big glutes because I wasn't doing it for my quads. I was doing it just as, as a squat. Whereas when you start kind of, yeah, I, I just love that you guys introduced that to kind of building, growing for hypertrophy because I just think that's kind of a missing element and it can be easily poo-pooed, I think, because it's not necessarily scientifically evidenced. It's not like they don't research those areas as much. But when you uh, like think about it, Kind of, and you use it within practice, within the principles of what we know is scientific evidence for hypertrophy that I just find it bridges that gap so nicely. Yeah, I'm glad. And it's, it's one of those funny things too. Like when you have that, that, that exact example is really funny where you're like, okay, I just did a set of squats. Where do I feel it? Well, I really feel it in my adductors. Good thing my quads are growing, right? Like, eh, <laughs> probably not, right? Like maybe a little bit, um, but it's good. It's like a good, you know, your, your technique is kind of like your foundation, right? You say like, if I do the technique externally correct for the most part, I'm probably getting what I want. And then you add something like a mind muscle connection or like a sense of tension or burning or any, all of the above. Uh, that's a way of kind of second checking what you're doing. So I know my technique is good on the squat, but I don't actually feel it in my quads at all. I just feel it like in my adductors and in my groin. It's like, well, that's probably getting all the pump in there. That's the reactive hyperemia because that's the muscle that's probably working harder than anything else. Right. And then you go, Oh, well, okay, that's great. Maybe I should think about trying something else that I feel it more in the muscle that I'm actually trying to target. The pump is a tough one. And I, I actually, Mike and I didn't always see eye to eye. And I've, I've kind of come around because it tends to be more of like a qualitative thing. It's, it's like not a quantitative mm -hmm. thing. And typically as physiologists, we try to look at the things that we can measure and say like, hey, this is something we can document. You can show numbers, right? The pump is like, where do you feel it? And people are notoriously bad at these kind of qualitative assessments. So I'm always like, yeah, the, the pump makes sense. 
in principle, but can you actually use it in a meaningful way? And so Mike was always felt really strongly about it, and kudos to him on that. I was more skeptical, big surprise there. Um, but I think like that middle ground of saying like, the pump's not the end all be all, but if you're not getting a pump in the muscle that you're targeting, something's probably wrong, right? If like, if you're doing a bench press and you're getting a bigger delt pump than a pec pump, like it's probably at least good secondary evidence to say, maybe you need to adjust your technique so you feel more in your chest because why, why, why does the pump happen? The pump happens from reactive hyperemia, which is basically when you're exercising a muscle. As the muscle is contracting, it kind of occludes itself for a little while. It builds up metabolites, just like if you did BFR training, same idea, except the muscle's doing it to itself. And then when, those, when you stop and you relax the muscle, those metabolites flush out. It causes this vasodilatory effect in the muscle that you just trained, and it goes whoosh, and you get this big pump right? Because you get this huge surge in fluid and blood flow, which is sweet. So that's a really good indicator of like, okay, well, if I get a big pump, that means that whatever muscle I'm feeling that pump in definitely was doing something a little while ago because the metabolites cause this reactive hyperemia. So it's, 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 it has a very strong theoretical basis. But again, you ask a lot of people, and I'm sure you have this with your clients, like, oh, did you feel it? Where'd you feel a pump? They're like, I don't know what that is. And you're like, or they they just took a huge dose of Viagra or something. And you're like, I, I feel a pump, all right. And you're like, get out of here, gross, you pervert. That's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> and uh, I, where's my head gone? Uh, so we, we brought up uh, Arnie and his encyclopedia. I'm like, just think of Arnold. Like he was talking about the the pump and I always humming and all that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I always use the a balloon as if it's full to like bursting. That's kind of the way I get people to try and visual, visualize it. And I guess in that sense, it's like that's the theory behind cell swelling and kind of that pathway to hypertrophy is that kind of that muscle cells filling up and it's kind of needs to reinforce itself to grow better. And actually it's just made me think of something because I know you're relatively a fan of pre-workouts and some of them have agents in there. That's, that's nothing to be proud of. That's just drug <laughs> addiction, right? That's just me being shameful. Um, but within there, there's quite often f products in there that's uh, promoting blood flow and kind of uh, pumps essentially. Uh, like citrulline malate or things like this, beetroot. I know nitrates have become popular. Do you think if they did enhance the pump, that could theoretically provide more of a evidence-based use for such a supplement? Potentially. I remember when like the NO stuff came out in like the, really it was like the late 90s and more, more thoroughly like in the 2000s, they used to actually have like manuals on how to use it properly. So there was like a huge timing effect with the NO stuff in terms of like your sodium, your carb, your fluid intakes, proximity to workouts, all this stuff. It was like a really big rigmarole. Um, so ultimately, I, f I think what we have found with those things is like they may enhance blood flow in certain ways, but probably not to any like tangible, not to a degree that's going to cause any significant like hypertrophy. I think it might allow you to make better mind-muscle connections because you might get like a really good pumping effect. Um, it might allow you to have that like secondary verification of like, oh yeah, this particular variation that I'm working is really hitting the, the area of the muscle that I wanted. Okay, that's great. Is it going to like help you put on gobs and gobs of muscle over time? Man, no way. I, I even, even if it did help at all, it's going to be such a small effect. Yeah. I think you're going to have a, probably a more tangible effect from, I would say, diet stuff than, um, than any of the NO or pre-workout type supplements. Because like, what have you gotten your best pumps? It's like the day after uh, Christmas, <laughs> right? After you've been like just eating pie and turkey and gravy and shit with your family. Those are the best pumps you'll ever get in your life, right? Like, have you had good pumps from pre-workout stuff? Yeah, probably every, every now and again. But I think nutrition is going to be just so much more powerful in that regard. So I'm not distracted. My all of my pets decided to enter the room. Uh, they under the, they're, no, I they're, I'm like, they're all he, looking at me. What's he <laughs> like, doing with his arm? This happens to me with Ada. Oh, there we go. Oh, oh boy. Oh boy. Here, I'll grab ham real quick. Oh, who's my big girl? Oh yes. Oh who's wow. My big ham. Who's my big ham? Do they oh, just yeah. relax when you get them on your lap like that? This one will. The other one will kind of get fussy. Um, she's. I think she has to. Uh, she's getting hungry. So. <laughs> She's gonna have to wait. Well, we are actually almost up to an hour, so that's good. Um, and I, but I did want to ask if there is anything. I guess you kind of mentioned some things in the pipeline. You mentioned, and I actually spoke about this to Mike yesterday with the hypertrophy kind of book was coming out. And I asked him, yeah. and actually, I need to ask you, what's your favorite chapter so far? Because I'm trying to remember what his was. I think I no, I do know his. 
trying to remember because it's something I've looked at so many times at this point. You kind of it reminds me of my dissertation where you just you're kind of putting <laughs> yeah. it out of your mind and you're just like, please someone else look at this, not me. I don't want to look at it anymore. So I think the individualization chapter is really helpful for a lot of people. Nice. So a lot of the stuff like you, you know, most people have heard at this point of overload and face potentiation and have a pretty good idea of what that is. And I think the hypertrophy book does a really good job of going in depth in terms of what it means for hypertrophy training specifically. But the individualization chapter, I think is really useful for people and making decisions that are going to help them to be evidence-based and not just arbitrary, right? Where you say like, there are, I know that I respond differently to some things. Get out of here. I know I respond differently to some things than others. I know there's some exercises or some strategies or maybe even some intensity techniques or some volume intensity spectrums that just work better for me. And the individualization chapter will help people kind of put that into practice without having to just take wild guesses and be like, I think I'm slow twitch man, or I think I'm fast twitch man, or I think spider curls are really good versus just doing kind of more basic stuff. Yeah. So there's definitely a lot of good stuff in there. And I think um, having Mel take a review after Mike and I put our work into it, Mel took a crack at it and really kind of consolidated a lot of the stuff. And she put like some really good, helpful, practical, like bubbles in there. So I think people will really enjoy it a lot. And I know people have been asking for it for a long yeah. time. And I know we've been working on it for a long time. Um, but yeah, I think the individualization one is, I think the one that I think people will hopefully enjoy quite a bit. I still remember when you and Mike came over in 2015 to London for the first time and yeah, Mike laid out the kind of all the principles for muscle hypertrophy and people were asking back then, when, when's the book coming out? He was like, when we've got more science, when we've got more data. And it's good to hear that, I mean, you guys wouldn't be releasing this unless you felt like you could actually put this out there and it's not like, I don't know, in a month's time is going to be useless or something. It's like, this is pretty close to what we think is going to be ideal for you in terms of programming for hypertrophy. And uh, I know individualization, that's one of the things for strength training or powerlifting. Maybe it's not something super kind of important because they're kind of, they have to do the big three. Whereas for bodybuilding, I think that is the thing that can really, really help someone. So I'm glad, yeah, to hear that you've got that in there and that's going to be well covered. Do you want to guess what Mike's favorite chapter was? <laughs> overload could you it was overload yeah you know <laughs> awesome. yeah, i've known mike for a while yes i know uh, i know what he thinks yeah i think it's good and i think we did a good job of saying too you know like you know research is a fluid thing and there's always more stuff coming in and out all the time so i think we, we we stated what was clear to us and then there's plenty of other stuff where we just say hey this is based on our opinions and our observations and some of our own anecdotes and this is what we recommend so i think it's it's a good mix of both and i think as sports scientists that's kind of the route that we want to go so if you're an exercise physiologist you you sit more on the research side of things if you're a sport coach you sit more on the anecdote and experience side of things and i feel like maybe i'm stroking my own ego here a little bit but i feel like sport physiologists we tend to be kind of in that middle ground where we say there's research yep. there's experience there's probably good things in both of them and so this is what we want to put out and so i know on the hypertrophy book we did that and in the book i'm working on the same thing like a lot of it's just like this is what the research says this is what coaches do here's what i think is probably the best practice so we do a lot of that and i think people will enjoy it yeah that's to me that's the the best uh that's evidence-based practice so like it it's it's best because yeah you can have the bookworms and you can have the guys in the field and you kind of need them to mesh so uh, i'm very excited for it i've been applying like you you know lots of the principles you guys have been talking about for years to great success so i'm glad that this book is going to be out there and then there needs to be another big project, which there probably will be, and knowing you guys, so don't um, worry. That's it's it's there's a, it's a, the wheels are already turning. <laughs> Fantastic, always something. Yeah, James, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you guys for listening. Um, James, if people do want to reach out to you specifically or to find more information that you're putting out, I know you said you're not that big on social media, but you do crop your head up now and then. Where should they look? Yeah, thanks again for having me on. It's always great to chat. So uh, RP is usually the place to go. If you guys ever want to shoot uh, Mike and I a question that we do a weekly webinar segment on YouTube. So if you go to the RP YouTube page, you subscribe. And then on the latest webinar, you can just pop your questions into the comments. Or if you see a question that you really like that somebody else already asked, you can like it and upvote it. And then we usually take about 10 every week and we take the 10 top voted comments. And then if you want to reach out to me, I'm on, uh, <laughs> I'm not super active on social media, but I'm RP Dr. James on Instagram. Um, I'm just, 
James Hoffman, I think on Facebook. Um, but RP is usually the way to go. So I'm usually, I, if you, if you ever reach out to RP, I'll be in the background somewhere. I'm, I'm the creepy guy like, <laughs> looking through the picture in the, in the, the picture frame or something, but I'll be there. Thank you so much, James. And thank you once again for listening, guys. We'll talk to you soon. So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Floor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger, to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people. Uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically, we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within our little niche is going to be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there. You can ask questions, but also you can you can log your journey. There's also going to be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics. Discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're going to have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're going to go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're going to be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.